once again. We're going to read, study the topic of worldview. But first, let me call your attention to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Really set the stage for dealing with culture and calling. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Or from him? And through him, to him, are all. To him, glory ever. Amen. Father, bless reading of your word. Write its truths deeply upon our hearts. Let us understand how and why Paul, apostle, your servant, wrote this explosion of praise upon considering what Christ is and what he's done. Help us now to think appropriately according to who Jesus is and what he's done. Called out one, so help us in this, Lord, be with me today as your servant to courage and to challenge your people through the word. Use all my frailties, Lord. In his name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to be in a few different passages this morning, but as we consider kind of the foundational text here, Romans 11, 33-36, if you were to study the whole letter to the Romans, which I encourage you to do, Romans 1 through 11 displays in summation the terribly sinful condition of our hearts, the heart of humanity. In Romans 1, 3 through 19, we see our desperate case. And then we see the great work of Christ on the cross to provide a a righteousness and and a sacrifice for sin so that we could be justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. As you move on in, in, in Romans, you see the mighty sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit, who who conquers sin and makes us secure in the love of Jesus Christ. See that in chapter 6 through 8. And then you see the great defense of God's sovereign grace in Romans 9 through 11, his his promise-keeping faithfulness. So it's a glorious, incredible, it's, I think I mentioned last week, Paul's magnum opus, if you will, the greatest and sweetest of doctrines in the letter to the Romans. And in chapter 12, he's about to go into the implications then of 
the doctrine? How is that doctrine applied and worked out in the life of God's people? But before he does that, before he is about to call the people of God and beseech them by the mercies of God to present themselves, their bodies as living sacrifices, fully acceptable to God, which he says was their reasonable act of worship. Before he's to call them to think Christianly, to think biblically, by having their mind renewed by the word of God, he he responds with this explosion of praise that we just read. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Quotes from the Old Testament. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. There's no one even close to God. And verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, to him alone be glory forever, ever, ever. This flow of worship, this flow of glory that is to come from the heart of his creatures, of his creation. That's the purpose for our existence, the purpose of our humanity, the purpose of the existence of the universe, but particularly the existence of, of, of mankind is to make God look as glorious as he actually is. All of creation exists to display the glory of God. All of history is designed by God to one day be this beautiful canvas, if you will, this this, this display of God's glory in the best way possible that shows his, his beauty, his, his greatness, his magnificence forever. To consider that Jesus Christ came into this world to display this righteousness and to vindicate the righteousness of God. Do the work of repair Repairing the injury that we had done. Our distortion through sin. The glory of God. To come now to understand this good news, this gospel. Realize that, that I personally exist and you personally exist to glorify God. Your salvation is meant to put the glory of God on display. Why he created the universe. This is why God has ordered and ordained history. Why he sent his son. It's why you exist. Why I exist forever to display the glory of God. I ask you, considering that, do you embrace that calling? Do you see that calling and do you embrace that calling? Is that your joy? Because if you're going to have a biblical worldview, if you're going to think Christianly about everything, you have to start there. And then you have to respond 
in that same worshipful way in every single area of our lives. The last several weeks, since the beginning of January, we have been looking at worldview, understanding the lens that we see all of life from. It's not just a worldview, it's an all of life view. How do Christians think? And we've looked at, we have can't come up with these things on our own. It has to be given to us by revelation. So we base everything upon the foundation of God's revealed word, his truth, his word is truth. And then we desire by his grace to be, according to Romans 12, transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now we actually learn how to think, that we don't just assume that we're thinking biblically, we actually start thinking biblically talked about the summation of such biblical worldview thinking is summed up in, in every category in these three words. You might remember them. I hope you do. Do you remember them? Where are we going? Creation, fall, redemption. Imagine that as we'll talk about that again today. We've looked the last three weeks at authority. Whose authority? Who's in charge? certainly know that God is in charge of all, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. God in his wisdom has delegated his ultimate authority in different spheres that are not to trample on the authority of one another. We looked at the family, the church, and the state. Today we're going to look at culture and our calling with regard to how we deal with, with culture. In four points this morning, here's what we're going to talk about. Number one, the crisis of culture. Secondly, the characterization of culture. Thirdly, we'll look at the context of culture. And then fourthly, we'll see the calling toward a transformational gospel culture. So point one, follow along with me and take some notes. Hopefully you have a handout. If not, there will be some in the back and Brother Joe can get you one. If you raise your hand, he'll, he'll bring you one. But point number one is this, the crisis of culture. The crisis of culture. I don't think I have to spend too much time on this point with this uh, audience. <laughs> uh, you don't have to look very far to understand that our culture is in major crisis. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was, who was always one to say pithy things, wrote these words, and he was commenting on the life of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was the, a, a philosopher, a, a horrible philosopher, whose life ended in despair, and he said these words, the man who thinks without the proper first principles, goes mad. And so if you're looking at it's a great summation of the crisis of culture because if you don't understand the proper first principles, biblically speaking, what do you end up with? Craziness. Madness. We look at culture and we think, madness. Well, it's no doubt. Why? Because proper first principles are not in place. Madness would increasingly seem to be the right term to describe the direction of our culture today. The first principles for, for our God's social order have, have ceased to be, in, in a primary way, the word of God. And tragically, that same word is being abandoned in large parts by the church itself. By people who claim to be followers of Christ and in its place, man's will, man's desires, man's thoughts have been permitted to, to rule and to determine what truth is and what justice is and thereby the direction of culture itself. 
Canadian philosopher named George Grant, who was labeled a Christian, but I don't think he was, based on his writings. But yet he understood the West's present cultural experience and perspective. He wrote these words. He said, justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven, quote-unquote. Moral principles, he writes, like all other social conventions, are something, quote, made on earth, end quote. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent. That is, they must be the result of a contract, and these principles must therefore be rooted in understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals rather than in any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change. But the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical. A lot of truth there. You can look at any realm. You can look at the family realm. And these, this is the way things are handled today. Perspective of much of the culture. You look at the church realm. Perspective of much of the culture. The state realm. Perspective of the culture. There's a rejection of any vertical accountability for this understanding of horizontal relativity. Today, we have a bunch of people that are conferring on ourselves the contractual right to redefine everything, including gender, irrespective of, of creational chromosomes, right? The right to murder a baby in the womb, the right to, the right to polygamy, sodomy, bestiality, whatever. You name it, they're coming up with rights. The right to suicide. The right to euthanize children who are not a benefit to society or the elderly or the sick, right? The, the right to homosexual marriage. All of these things. These are our rights. The right to suppress the worship of the living God. The right to free speech, to, to suppress the free speech of Christians, the right to blasphemy, goes on and on and on. All of this clothed in this air of freedom and, and human dignity, which ultimately amounts to nothing but radical autonomy and shaking his fist at God. So, few today would deny that our Western moral principles are shifting like the sand, or that the change in the church's relationship with the surrounding culture is happening right before our eyes. The compromise character of much of the modern church is not a secret. liberalizers, both in evangelical and mainline denominations. They, they love to publish their apostasy to the world, talk of unhitching from the Old Testament and such. It's always interesting to me, no one wants to unhitch from Psalm 23, say. 
But everyone wants to unhitch from the law. Commandments of God. All of these cultural circumstances, changes in moral truth brought about by these contemporary gurus and sages. See, many leaders, even within our churches, have long forsaken anything that resembles a scriptural, a biblical, let alone a historical understanding of this world-transforming So, consequently, understanding both the nature and the relationship of the biblical gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, understanding the nature of it and its relationship to culture has never been more vital. Vital to the future of the Western world, vital to the future of the Western church, vital I would say, to the destiny. So certainly, all of this crisis we're in is reflective of the truth of Isaiah as he saw in chapter 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Yet the goodness of the Lord says that the Lord has laid on Christ. This is the crisis of the day. Secondly, what is culture? Let's look at the characterization of culture. I don't know how you understand it, but let me share some things with you. The English words culture, related to the English word agriculture, they're derived from a Latin root, a Latin word, which is polere, polere. Uh, That is a word that we get our English word cult from related to the Latin word cultus, which means literally worship. Again, the usage of it is most noticeable in the way we use the the religious undertones of the modern usage of the word cult. And so if you say there's a religion over here that's a cult, you're basically understanding that culture is something based in worship. We look at some definitions. There are some good ones I put on your notes, and we'll go through those. Herman Gurevierd, which I love those good Dutch names, Hombard John. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he was a Dutch uh, theologian, philosopher. And he said this word regarding culture, that culture is the public manifestation of the religious ground motive or worship of a people. So culture then is a state of being cultivated by a intellectual as well as a moral working or or tilling in terms of a prevailing idea of worship. So by natural extension, it forms a particular type of civilization. This cultus, if you will, this worship is always communitarian. It's not just individualistic. It's transmitted through communities, through family, through education, through law, through art, through other varied institutions that then shape cultural life itself. Duyavir went on to say, the religious ground motive of a culture can never be ascertained from the ideas of the personal faith of the individual. 
It is truly a communal motive that governs the individual, even when one is not consciously aware of it or acknowledges it. In essence, when you think of culture, I believe biblically we should see it and understand it in terms of worship. And that is something that that filters out and influences large masses of people. That's why, for instance, you you go to certain parts of the world. So if you travel to the Middle East, say you go to Saudi Arabia or or Syria or, or Pakistan, what kind of culture will you find there? You'll find an Islamic culture embedded and ingrained into the masses. It's going to be expressed in everything. It's going to be expressed in the law. It's going to be expressed in the way they educate, in their art, in their architecture, in their food. I really like their food, by the way. <laughs> you go to India. What are you going to experience? What kind of culture will you experience in India? Any guesses? Hindu culture. Flood it all throughout. It's going to dominate the social order based around this idea of the Hindu caste system. You go to North Korea or, or China, you're going to find a Marxist-oriented culture, which is religious in nature. Go to Tibet, you're going to find a Buddhist culture, and so on and so forth. How about if you go to the West? Go to the United States. Go to Canada. Go to North America. What kind of culture will you encounter? Well, increasingly, what you experience in the Western world now is a humanistic, secular culture. Now, when I say secular, don't think unreligious. It's very religious. It's deeply influenced by pagan spirituality, which at the same time displays these culturable vestiges of Christianity. It's certainly there, right? The spiritual well of Western culture has been undergoing, though, this seismic shift from generations now. So Christianity and Christian truth has largely ceased to give direction to the historical development of our society. But how powerful is the Christian culture, if you will, because look how much Western culture has decayed over the last, say, 100 years, and yet we're still living off the benefits of our forefathers who believed in the things we're talking about today. Because it's powerful. So it's a precarious place to be right now, where we are in the Western culture. This, this real crisis emerges at the foundations of, of our society's culture. And that crisis is always accompanied by spiritual uprootedness. Henry Van Til accurately defined culture as religion externalized. You take what you believe and you let it live out, that becomes culture. So in essence, all culture is the expression of people's worship. Man, in culture, look at uh, Sandlin's, Dr. Sandlin's definition here. He says, culture denotes those products of human interactivity with nature that reflect the self-conscious goal of human benefit. Education, science, entertainment, technology, architecture, the arts, even such simple human products as meals, toys, personal grooming products. Humankind 
intentionally employs the raw materials of creation for beneficial purposes. So when it comes to culture, you have to understand in these terms, so you have a tomato, not culture. It's creation. But you have a pizza. That's culture. You have oxygen. That's not culture. That's creation. But if you have an oxygen mask, culture. Right? King David, creation or culture? Creation, right? Creation of God. But how about Michelangelo's sculpture of King David? Florence, Italy. Culture. You see, creation is not culture, and culture is not creation. Creation, according to John Frame, is what God makes. Culture is what we make. Not ex nihilo, not out of nothing. God alone does that. God creates, and then we take the resources that God creates, and we turn it into things that benefit. In this, there's no neutrality. Within culture, there's no neutrality. There, there's a myth of a sacred, secular divide here. That this is religious over here, and this is secular, has nothing to do with God, and somehow it can operate independently and freely from God and all of God's principles. That's not true biblically. There's no neutrality. We, we got all this raw material to work with. The question is, what are we going to do about it and why? This is God's world. It's not to be seen in some dualistic sense that, that he's apart from this world and, and all the material stuff is bad stuff. It's not to be seen in, in regards to salvation as it's just I'm, I've, I've got a, a ticket to heaven and I'm okay and I have nothing else to do in the world. A lot of people want to avoid the, the culture battle because, well, no, I'm spiritual. It's not a question about are you going to be a part of cultural building or not. The human being is a culture maker by nature. Why? Well, let's, let's look at the context of culture. Point three. And you're going to find this rooted in our biblical summary of creation, fall, redemption. Letter A, culture is rooted and structured in creation. Genesis 1 Verse 26 through 28, we see what is called the, the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Here we see the establishment of what we studied weeks ago, the structures of creation. The structures of creation, the creational norms that God established, things like male-female distinction. Things like the image of God upon man. They hold, these things are are, are, are solid, they hold like the law of gravity, and there are consequences to breaking them. God creates, and in his creation, he structures and orders all of life. 
And then he gives a commandment to, to men. It says in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. I got a job for you. You're created in my image and now I got a job for you. Go out and have a lot of babies and fill this earth because we're going to need a lot of help to cultivate this earth. In Genesis 1, uh, or excuse me, 2.15, the Lord, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work. Other versions say to cultivate it and to keep it. God created man for a job. And a, that job is, is, is an act of worship. The word work there in Genesis 2.15 literally means to till. It's the Hebrew word abad. It means to, to work it, to till it, and it's the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament when it comes to the service of God in worship. For instance, Levitical worship. When the priests would come and work for God and serve God, this is what it means. This is the commission. This is the commandment. This is the call. Man is to cultivate. When I say man, I mean all of us. Humanity is to cultivate. Have a lot of babies. Take dominion and, and take all the things I've made and harness them and take them and use them for the benefit of, of all mankind and for my glory. Do that work. So Adam and Eve were not created to just walk around with God in the garden. They were not created just to have fellowship with God and to kick their feet up and to get, you know, fed the grapes and fanned and just, in, just tiptoe through the tulips with God all day. God gave them work to do, and that was before the fall. And that work was a service to him which involved cultivating his good creation for his glory. They were called to exert godly dominion. So in, in a biblical worldview, culture becomes what human beings make of God's good creation. Herman Bavinck commenting on this passage, this verse in Genesis 1.26, teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image. Namely, that man should have dominion. And if now we comprehend the force of this subduing or this dominion, if we comprehend it, Bobbing says, under the term culture, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. Culture making is therefore inescapable for all of God's image bearers. Why? It's an expression of worship. Human beings will turn the visible and the invisible materials of, of God's creation into culture and will do it either as covenant keepers or as covenant breakers. It's all God's people, all God's creatures are either obedient or disobedient as they stand in relationship to their covenant God. This is where Christ comes in. As the very center of creation is, if culture is rooted and structured in creation, look at the totality of Christ's authority over all of creation. Look at Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus Christ, is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn or the supreme of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see the all-encompassing totality of the authority of Christ, the authority that he said was his. In Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the man, the true human, the pure and perfect humanity, Christ. The sending out of the people of God in Christ matters. The culture making that comes out of the people of God matters. It's rooted in creation, yet it's challenged. Why? Because letter B was distorted by the fall. Not destroyed, but distorted. See, the structure in creation Now we see the requirement for the direction of culture. And there's only two ways. Because of sin, there's only two ways culture can go. Look at Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. And here's the crux. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And in this rebellion against God, in this refusal to even see the majesty of God, but to say, nope, no desire for it, don't want it, hate it, their foolish hearts are darkened, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, idolatry. You see, there's only two Ways, two directions for worship to go. You either worship the God or you worship creation. Doesn't matter what that creation looks like, oftentimes it's us. It's man ourselves. We we worship ourselves. You see, some cultures that actually take and make images, right? They they make the carvings out of little statues and they actually bow down and worship them. And we on the Western world smugly look at them and think, ha we're not that primitive. No, we just worship ourselves. This is why God is so hateful 
of graven images. Right? The second commandment, don't make a graven image. Don't, and and you, sometimes you think, well, why is that such a big deal to God? He already said, don't worship another God. You have no other gods before me. But now he gets specific to say you're not to take a little tree and carve it up and make an image out of it. Why does God hate idols so much? And here's why. He already has an image. He made himself an image. It's you and me. It's humanity. It's mankind, and he is jealous for the image that he created. That image is designed and purposed to reflect his glory, the creator's glory, not to take the creation and somehow attribute glory, intrinsic glory, to the creation itself. So he hates idolatry. And that's where we come to the crossroads of cultural formation. You will either worship God as God and do everything for his glory, or you will worship the creature, the creation itself, and you'll want to give glory somewhere else. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8, the psalmist sings these beautiful words, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8, and those who make them come like them. So do all who trust in them. Lifeless, useless, meaningless, hollow. have the structures that God has established. So the issue is which direction will they move? Is, is it going to be true worship of the one true and holy God? Or is it going to be apostasy? Is it going to be rebellion? There's no third option. There, there's no other direction. It's either one or the other. How do we we go in the right direction. Better see, culture is restored and transformed through redemption, through the redemptive work of Christ. Son of God and God the Son, fully God, fully man, comes to does the work of redemption in living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, rising from the dead, showing his power over all of it. And this redemption is found only in Christ. Paul continues in Colossians 1 verse 21 and writes, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Paul says, and of which I, Paul, became. Redemption is found only in Christ and redemption is proclaimed in all of creation. This is where Christian culture is going. A lot of times we have the wrong things in our mind of what cult Christian culture is going to look like. We, we, we have ideas that it's like some white picket fence and it's the American dream and it's the worship of Jesus Christ over all things, as supreme over all things. And it's spreading that worship into every square inch of this world, far as the curse is found. Every corner of it, every, every cranny of it, every part of it. Gospel culture sings, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow. Far as that curse is found. And this is powerful. Because the gospel is powerful. Romans 1, you know the passage, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is good news. Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection is good news. And I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. The gospel is, is good news. It's that Jesus through his atoning death, through his resurrection, won the salvation of hopeless sinners. But we don't stop there. That's a truncated gospel if we stop there. And we're missing out on vast parts of scripture because the gospel also means the redemption of the entire cosmos. This is God's ultimate goal. It's where he's going. A lot of times Christians tend to think of salvation only in personal terms. It's my personal salvation, and that's certainly true. We have personally been saved by Jesus Christ. Praise his holy name. But it's not a personal salvation that's intended to, to stay in here and be privatized and pietized in such a way that it has no effect on any area of my life. It goes far beyond that. In Christ, we are redeemed from sin, fully forgiven, and put into a new community under God's rule and reign. And together, we extend that rule and reign throughout God's world. Why Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and says, what does that mean? Judgment's coming. Christ is returning. The day of the Lord is coming. Judgment's coming. And in light of that, what do you do? Sit around and just wait. No. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? He goes on in 2 Peter 3. He says, according to his promise, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And that word new, it, it, it really speaks of renewal. 
the way we use the word, like, like a new moon comes every month. It's the new moon. It's not a brand new moon. It's a renewed moon. And in the same way, God is going to redeem everything, all of creation. We're going to see that here in Romans 8. In such a way that there's a new heaven and a new earth. And Peter says, that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for this, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, because of that, because you're waiting, be diligent. Be diligent, he says, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And a lot of times we talk about the waiting, and, our, and, and, and we assume waiting is just means, I'm just waiting, Lord. We sang it earlier, how long, O oh Lord? That's the cry, a biblical cry, how long, O oh Lord? And in the meantime, we don't kick our feet up and just say, oh, I'm just going to sit here. No, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to labor. I'm going to build. I'm going to go forth and do what he told me to do. We're not saved to sit on a cloud and relax. We work. Not to build some sort of utopia, but to transform lives and this world. Now, and understanding that we're heading towards a full restoration of everything. Some have said, no, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Let's just go to our corner and wait. That's abdication. Turning our backs on what God has originally designed us for as humanity. Some would say, oh, isn't that an overrealized eschatology? No, I would say you have an underrealized soteriology. The gospel is powerful. It's truly powerful. It's not just some philosophy that helps us live life a little better. It's recreative power that remakes us, that totally transforms us, that, that gives us a completely new heart, new mind that is being renewed day by day, a new life, new thoughts, new desires, new affections. And too many of our problems in all the areas of life is because we don't believe that practically. We might say we believe it, we don't believe it practically. We've got marriage problems because we don't believe that practically. The gospel is the power of God, is it? And we end up making peace with sin. Why? Because it's hard to walk out such faith. Yes, it is hard. Worshiping God this way is hard. Glorifying God this way is hard. Involves pain, involves suffering. Consider glory. Paul speaks of in Romans 8 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not to be, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Poor creation, it didn't do anything. <laughs> You know, that tree in your yard didn't do anything. But it's covenantally linked to us. <laughs> and it's waiting. Waiting for the day of final redemption and recreation. Why? Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to, fu to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. My dad, talk about you. Picked them up this morning. I picked them up. I've been picking them up every Sunday because he doesn't drive anymore because his eyes are bad now. Uh, you know, part of getting older. Got in the car this morning. He's like, uh, you okay? Uh, I'm just struggling with being older. Groaning. Waiting. Redemption of his body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. That's why it's hard work. Hard work to hope. You gotta labor to hope. You don't just sit around and hope just comes. Hope grows through obedience. Hope grows as you exercise your faith. You see his promises clear and clear and clear. If we hope for what we do not see, wait for it with patience. I don't want to wait that long. I want my way and I want it now. Transformed. Being of your mind. Jesus. High priestly prayer. John 17 told disciples, I have given them your word, which is our hope of the word of God. Struggling, speak, hear the word of God, read the word of God. You get another, you can take another step. Given them your word, Jesus said, and prayer and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. I'm not of the world. Jesus speaks of the world. He's not talking about the, the dirt, grass. He's talking about this system of unbelief and rebellion against him. Because they're not of that. I'm not of that. And I don't ask that you take them out of the world. That you keep them from the evil one. That, that my kingdom is going to be planted. There's going to be wheat and there's going to be tares. And they're going to dwell together. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. But sanctify them in the truth, he prayed. Your word is truth. And just as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's what I'm saying. Part of being sent into the world is letting your faith 
by God's grace, empowered by the gospel, shape everything in your life. Because that's what you're called to. Point four, the calling toward a transformational gospel culture. Why should we work on this? Why is it important? If the gospel transforms individuals, and if culture is worship, if it's the outworking of the beliefs of individuals, then the gospel can transform a culture. Behold, all things can be and will be made new. Is it going to be a challenge all the day? Is it going to be a challenge in different areas of culture? You better believe it. This truth applies to the persecuted church in Iran as they work out the, the implications of their faith in that culture where their freedoms are incredibly limited and it may mean their death. It can be worked out in the implications of our current Western culture and the paganism, the secular humanism that surrounds us. We're not to be of the world. We're to be in it. Foundational question of why even think about such things as cultural transformation is really answered in this question, who are we as human beings? What is a human being? We work on cultural transformation. Well, let me ask, what's a human? And what does it mean to be human? Why in the world are you here? If we understand the beginning, creation, you understand that you are God's image bearer. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? It means that you were created and designed to glorify him by imaging or reflecting his desires, his purposes for all of creation, back to all of creation for his glory. And all of our work and all of our labor and all of our service is done in terms of that. So the gospel and responding to it is so much more than you just saying a prayer and, oh, I'm going to heaven now, back to my life. It requires the absolute lordship of Christ over everything. The gospel is redemptive and restorative in everything in God's creation. Yes, we'll not see the fullness of it until Christ returns. And yet we are about to be about his kingdom business now. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's this cosmic reconciliation in Christ that he has done, the, the work of Christ on the cross. It's the central point, the axis point for the history of all creation, whether in heaven or on earth. History is going somewhere. And all will make sense when everything is finally brought under the totality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You go on in Ephesians and look at Ephesians 2. There's a whole passage I could read, but for time's sake, just look at verse, verse 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are his creative design, created in Christ Jesus. For what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. What does that mean? Back next Sunday. I'm going to get into the details. Where do I begin? I'm seeing a call to this understanding of gospel culture. Where do I begin? I think it starts small. It's Joshua standing before the people of God and saying, you choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me, my house, we're going to serve the Lord. By the way, that word serve, abad. Same calling as Adam had. We will culturize for the Lord. We will till and work and serve for the Lord. We will go out into God's world and everything we do will have meaning because we're going to do it for his glory. We need that renewed vision, a renewed vision of what it means to be God's people. In our vocations, talk about that next week, in our businesses, in our jobs, in our everyday life, in the life of the church, in the life of the family. Talked about the state last week, but I don't even want to go there right now. Why? Because there's so many Christians that complain about culture and, oh, we're going to, you know, to hell in a handbasket and, and the government's this and that. And there's a lot of truth there, but yet they refuse the lordship of Christ, the total lordship of Christ within their own sphere of authority. How are you going to go fix that if we can't fix ourselves? We can't have our own families gospelized. Christian culture, according to Dr. Sandlin's, he said Christian culture is the wholesale refusal to make peace with God. That's where you start. It starts with repentance, with the regenerated heart. If you don't know Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to him, bow it today. Full faith and trust in him alone and his finished work on the cross to pay for your sins and his glorious resurrection to give you life. Submit yourself totally to him. And if you are regenerated, follow him. Go to him in humility and open the heart to him and say, Oh God, show me where I'm failing. Convict me of sin and change me. Deemed image bearers who live holy lives for his glory end up becoming agents of redemption, work, creating gospel cultures in our families, homes. Hard work, you better believe it. It's not a utopia. It's not just going to come easy. Labor and work for it. You're going to get on your knees until there's holes in the ground for it. Labor and work to see it in the church, to be a, a militant church, to be a church on the advance, a church that, that is going after the enemy, defeating him. Souls are being saved. A church that's not timid, to, 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 that, that stands strong. 
church that has a Lord that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Despite what the world or even some liberal churches might say. Jesus is not this weak, frail, hippie running around in flower fields that the godless culture portrays him to be. He's not some timid sap begging people to come to him. He can give them candy, goodies. The Lord is the creator. He's God. Deserves our worship. We're worshiping him. We're culture, we're building Christian culture. music team. Recognize Christian that you Christian oh God. And then in the midst of the difficulties of our labor on this earth the challenges that come with dealing with sin, our own indwelling sin, that we are to crush by the power of the gospel. Sin of others, the sin of re- in, in our relationships, the sin of, of society. Sometimes we step back and we look at the vastness of the problems in front of us and it's big. It seems so big, but church, how big is your God? So in response to his glorious grace that saved a wretch like me and you, take the words of D.L. Moody to heart, who said, if God be your partner, make your plans large. If God be for you, who can be against you? So may we respond today, understanding that we are sent in terms of the purposes of God as king. The purpose is to go out into all the world, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them everything he commands, to see hearts transformed that lead to families that are transformed, that lead to neighborhoods that are transformed, that lead to cities that are transformed and states and nations that are transformed. If God be your partner, make your plans really, really large.